may be seated and uh, we can let the children be dismissed for junior church. Good to see all of you. How many of you were shocked by the uh, heat when you got outside this morning? I was like, whoa, it got humid overnight. Um, but God is good and uh, praise him for the weather that he gives us. Praise him at all times and in all things. And uh, just a good time of worship as we come to the time in the word this morning. Um, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Uh, I have two titles for my sermon. Uh, these are like alternate titles. One is Rescue, Blessing, and Wisdom, okay, which is the flow of this text. And the other is the battle of blessings and trials. Okay? The, 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 the struggle that we face when we experience times of battle and times of blessing. Okay? Both of those circumstances in our lives raise tension. Okay? Blessings, we're less aware of the tension that rises with blessings. With battles, we know there's tension. It's just the nature of the beast in our Christian experience. As we look at this uh, story of Abraham, we've uncovered from chapter 12 that he moved into a place which was the call of God. It was the will of God that he go there. But when he gets there, he finds that the promised land is occupied. Okay, there were Canaanites in the land. Okay, so the, the place that God had called him to on planet Earth was going to be a place of testing, of tension. It is an occupied land. That occupation has already been causing certain trials and temptations. Okay, the trial of the famine, the trial of Abraham's wife when he went down to Egypt. Okay, there's intermix. Lot chose the area near Sodom. Okay, so there were these Various kinds of trials and temptations that are arising in the place that God called Abraham to. So that means this. That means that God has purposes in seasons of battle. God has purposes that come through in seasons of blessing in our lives. In both of those arena, bat arenas, battles and blessings, we face very specific, somewhat predictable, and unique temptations. Okay, that's just present we face battles and when we experience blessing there are certain temptations that we begin to experience now when you come into this text and i'm not going to read through verses 1 through 11 for this reason okay i'm nervous about pronouncing all the names of all those kings i think i counted 16 or 17 uh, one approaches go through read loud and bold and people say okay i didn't know that was pronounced that way all right but i'm not going to do that to you this morning okay I, here's what i'm going to encourage you to do after you go home today, I want to encourage you to read through Genesis 14 in light of some of the things that we will discuss this morning. Verses 1 to 11 are critical verses about the tension that's rising in the land. What I want to do is give you an overview of this classic military campaign. Okay, this is, if you'll remember now, the first war that is recorded in Scripture. It doesn't mean it's the first war in human history, but it is the first battle or war that is recorded in the pages of Scripture. Why is it that this is the first battle that's recorded? Okay? And I believe this is the answer. It is the first battle that relates to the chosen people of God and the history of God's plan of redemption. Okay? Abraham is the man that God has chosen in the righteous line to become a nation and ultimately to be the man through whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to come. Okay? So 
this battle is mentioned because it is crucial to understanding the history of God's redemptive plan and how he is protecting the blessing of redemption for his people. So what was the ancient world like? The ancient world was a conglomerate of city-states, if you will, uh, smaller kings, not big, uh, big uh, uh, empires like Babylon and like Assyria, not yet. What you find is there, if you read through this, you're going to find the names, I think I counted 16 to 17 kings are listed or nation states are listed. Okay, and what they did is they would come together. They would form alliances between each other to pull power and resources. Okay, and here's kind of the way that it would work. Kings would form an alliance to pull their influence, their strength. There were ongoing battles for control. The cycle was something like this. A group of kings would defeat another group of kings. They would subjugate them to them and cause them to pay taxes to this other group of kings. Okay, when that burden got oppressive, okay, and we know the story in our own country, what happened? There was a revolution. Okay, why? Tired of paying these exorbitant taxes. Tired of you taking so much from us. So in this story, what happens is this. Five kings come together. Two of them are the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, and that's the, that's the thought in your mind to just jump out and say, okay, now I see the connection to the Abraham and Lot story through the names of the kings that are in this alliance. Five kings go against four kings. Five kings are part of those that were in subjugation. All right, they form a revolutionary mindset that says, you know what? We're sick and tired of these four kings ruling over us and taking so much from us. So they form an alliance and rebel. At the end of verse 4, you'll see this. Look at verse 4. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedor Laomer. Okay, so that's one name. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. So they pay their taxes for 12 years. In the 13th year, they've had it, and they form a rebellion. Okay? King Kedor Lamor is not happy about the rebellion. So what does he do? He calls together his king friends, and they form an army to go and destroy those that are rebelling against it, resubjugate them and start collecting our taxes again. Okay, now that's the, the ancient world cycle defeat, subjugation, payment of taxes, rebellion, defeat. Okay, so that's the, that's the, the, the context in which Genesis chapter 14 is set. It was a world in which might made right, and it is nothing abnormal or odd. That's the way it works in our world also. Rebellion of the oppressed, a response to the rebellion, a face-off of four kings against five kings. That's what's happening. Okay. Now, when you come to verse 10, you start to get into some history that is important to the story. Okay. Or should I say, it's where the story is going. It says, now the valley of Siddam, the valley of salt is the idea here, was full of tar pits. But when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled... Some of their men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. Okay? What's going on here? Okay? Basically, the people that have the home field advantage, those that live in Sodom and Gomorrah in that region, and those that have the numerical advantage, the five against the four, slide into trouble. Okay? There are tar bitumen pits. It was just basically a place where they would find pitch to patch things in the ancient world. Okay, to seal things. Some of the men from Sodom and Gomorrah fall into those pits. Their army becomes ensnared, which leaves the city of Sodom utterly vulnerable. Okay, now, in the story from chapter 
12 and 13, where is Lot? Okay, Lot looked at the plains of the Jordan and pitched his tents near Sodom. Okay, you'll remember that part of the story. So now Sodom is being attacked. It is being sacked. And the kings are taking all of the wives and all of the possessions, and they're going home. Okay, and the fascinating thing in the story is in verse 12. And this is the connection to the history of redemption. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living now where? In Sodom. Okay, so now you're like, okay, I start to understand the, the connection in this story. Okay, Lot is taken captive. What does that do to Abraham? Puts him in a terrible situation. But because of out of, out of honor, he's going to feel the need to get involved and to go and provide protection for his nephew Lot. He's one of his family members. This is purely and simply a matter of honor. But the history is crucial because it's leading us to understand how redemption and rescue works. So the tension arises with Sodom being attacked. Lot is taken. Abraham now has to respond. Okay, what I want to do is lead you through three basic lessons that emerge as you follow now the rescue of Lot from the, the four kings that came and sacked the land of Palestine. Okay, so let's look at four basic principles. Okay, principle number one is this. Foolish decisions can lead to difficult times or circumstances in our lives. Okay, we remember well the story of Lot. We know that he is a man who is living by sight. And so one principle that emerges is this. Okay, it is foolish for Christians, for the people of God, to live by sight, to make decisions based purely on economic issues. Lot chose, in the story of chapter 13, based on economic self-interest. He wanted immediate pleasure and immediate gratification. And to get that, what did he do? He compromised biblical principles or God-given calling and went and placed himself near Sodom. Okay, the other principle I think emerges as I look at this, the difficult times. It is foolish for us to think that moral compromise won't affect you. It is foolish to think that I'm strong enough to tolerate compromise or sin in my life. That I can somehow live with it there and overcome it. It won't ultimately have a negative bearing or impact on my life. Okay, now I want you to look at two things. Look at verse 12 of chapter 13. Verse 12 of chapter 13 says that Lot went and lived in the vicinity of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, when you come to chapter 14 and verse 12, what does it say? It says that Lot is living now in Sodom. Verse 11 of chapter 14. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Okay, so he went and lived in the vicinity. Then all of a sudden he's in thinking what? This, this, this alliance, this unholy alliance, in some way, it won't, I'm, I'm strong enough, it won't affect me. Okay, what just happened? How much has Lot just lost? Did he lose some of his goods? Well, the answer is Lot, in this case, what? He lost everything. Okay, now, why did he go down into the plains of Jordan? Because he thought he would get more. That's why he made that choice. 
But what does he find out? He find out, finds out that he has put everything in jeopardy. Why? Because he went in and was not a person of influence. He was a person who commingled. Now, I want to give you an illustration of, what, of how I see Lot and how I see Abraham in this account. Okay? And, and the illustration is this. If you have a, a, a pot or bowl of flour, okay, and you mix sugar into that flour, can you tell the difference between the flour and the sugar? Can you see a difference? Can you see a difference? The answer is ultimately no. Why? Because when you, when you mix sugar and flour together, what happens? They, they assimilate to one another. They, they blend, and there's no distinction left. Okay, God tells us as Christians that we are to live lives that are separate from the influences of the world, that we are to live carefully. We are to be present as influencers, but we're not to blend in and appear just like the world. I'll give you a second analogy. Take a bowl of flour and mix marbles into it. Okay? What happens? The marbles, they get coated with flour, but what are they? They're unaffected and they're not permeated by the influence of the flour. Okay, what does God say to us? He says, be in the world, but don't be of the world. John 15, right? What is our tendency? Our tendency and temptation is to go into the world and to allow the world to deeply influence and impact us so that people can no longer see a difference between us and the world around us. But when you study the life of Abraham, what do you find? You find that Abraham remains distinct. He looks, he's mixed in with, he's living in the context of the world, but he is substantially different. Lot had a tendency to go in and to be like the world. And the lesson that we learn is that these decisions that we make that bring difficulty, they have consequences. Lot chose self-interest and has lost everything. Now, folks, it takes courage and convictions to remain distinct. Okay? We live, just like Abraham lived in the promised land, you and I live in contested territory where we have to protect holiness, where we have to protect our decision-making. And I think it's critical as we, as we talk about that that we realize that it is important to settle your convictions ahead of time. All right, there are places that Christians shouldn't go. All right, there are movies that a Christian shouldn't watch. There's content on the internet that we should not look at. Okay, and, and sometimes we forget that. We're just, well, but I'm going out and just being an influence. You must do it wisely. Okay, you must do it wisely. Lot was not wise. He was driven by the immediate pleasures, the tangible, the things that he could touch. They drove him, and he ends up sacrificing things that are absolutely, he puts everything at risk in his life. And the things that are most important become less important because he's allowing the world to settle into his life. It's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says this to the church. He says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And what is he doing? He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's giving us a basic principle. Okay, and that is that we are to live in the context of the world, but there should be something distinct about the talk of Christians. There should be something distinctive, not weird, but distinctive about the, the look of a Christian young lady compared to a lady that doesn't know the truth yet. Okay, in, in, in various decisions that we make, you need to make decisions ahead of time about your ethics in regard to business, in regards to entertainment in your life. It takes courage and it takes convictions. 
the state clean. And the other thought that I think emerges out of this is when Lot left Abraham and went into Sodom, what does he notably not do? What, what isn't recorded? That's recorded for Abraham. Every time he goes somewhere new, what does Abraham do? He worships. He builds an altar to God. He erects something that will remind him about the God who called him to the land of promise. You never find that in Lot. You never find Lot seeking for the voice of God. What is Lot driven by? He's driven by dollar signs. Okay, from a worldly perspective, what is he? He's pretty smart and shrewd. So in a sense, you could say, kudos to Lot. Look at all he's getting. But when you follow out the story of this man, who is aligning himself with the world while he is a child of God's, I believe, based on 1 Peter. What happens? His testimony is diluted, and everything that is valuable and precious to him is put at risk by this bad decision-making. So, foolish decisions can lead to difficult times in our lives. Verse 13 is fascinating. Okay, because it now it, it's like, okay, where does Abraham fit into the flow of this account? Okay, where does Abraham fit into this picture? A man, verse 13 who had escaped from what? From the battle. He's a fugitive. He's escaped. He comes and reports to Abraham the Hebrew. First time Abraham's called a Hebrew. Why? Because he's becoming the father of the nation of Israel through ultimately whom the Messiah would come. And so here he's identified as Abraham the Hebrew. Okay, so the first time that that comes up in the text. And for the Jews that are coming out of Exodus later reading this account, what are they going to say? Okay, Abraham is our spiritual father. We are the Hebrew people. We have a unique identity before God. Verse 14, what does Abraham do? Abraham, when he heard that his relative, and literally the translation is his brother. We know it's his nephew, but the words that are used in the Old Testament talk about family dynamics. When he heard that his relative was taken captive, he called out 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay, this is fascinating territory. Abraham hears that Lot's in trouble. Well, why is Lot in trouble? Because Lot was morally stupid. He was morally foolish. Lot, or Abraham hears that Lot has a problem. What does Lot do? Lot, just simply in relationship to honor, not in relationship to what's deserved, but in relationship to honor, he stands up to this spiritual battle that has come into his life. The second point I want to just kind of address this morning is this. Courage and grace lead to rescue for sinners. Okay, courage and grace lead to rescue for sinners. That's the, the Abraham lesson. The lot lesson, compromise leads to difficulty. The Abraham lesson is this. Courage and conviction lead to rescue for sinners. So what does Abraham do? Abraham draws up a battle plan. And decides to go to war to deliver his nephew Lot and to bring him back into the land of promise. Okay, that is clearly Abraham's objective. Now, why is it that he is so quick to step up in this battle? Why he, He's unflinching. He hears, verse 14, when he heard, what did he do? He immediately draws together his men and goes after Lot. I want you to think about this. How many kings are dragging Lot back to the north towards Assyria? Five. Okay, what are the odds? I imagine that it's very much like the story of Gideon. It's very much like the story of Christ. He sends out 12 disciples into the world to change the world. Insurmountable odds. It doesn't make sense. But under the hand of the power of God, 
awesome and incredible things happen. So with 318 men, and I'm going to tell you this, I believe that there is no spiritual significance to the number 318. What is it? It's simply historical narrative recording facts about the life of Abraham to show us how much of a man of faith he was. That in the middle of this heated battle and tension, he takes a risk. He enters into war for the sake of this broader cause that God is working out. What are the lessons that we learn from Abraham in this thought, courage and grace lead to rescue? What is he doing? He's trusting God for the victory. He has faith that is bold, faith that is altering his life. There's no hesitation on Abraham's part. He's living in contested territory just like we do, but he is a man who trusts God. Why? Why is Abraham willing to go and take such a risk? I mean, you take 318 men to attack five armies. Now, what does he do? He develops a beautiful strategy. He comes in at night, which is a fear tactic, to scatter the armies and to get the possessions and take them back. That's exactly what happens. Why is Abraham so bold? Why would he take on such odds and the risk of creating enemies for the rest of his life? Why would he do that? You know why? Because he is a man who has been covered by the promises of God. And the result of knowing that he is covered by the promises of God is that when there is a need for action, he boldly steps forward. His faith is enriching and strengthening him so that when he faces a circumstance like this, he's not sitting back saying, oh, you know what, I need to pray about this. No, Abraham doesn't prepare for the spiritual battle in that moment. He is living a prepared life. He said to me, Pastor, how do you know that? Because everywhere this man goes, even after his failures, what is he doing? He erects a place where he acknowledges the power and glory of God over his life, where he acknowledges that God's the one that called him into the land of Palestine. And he, God wants him to protect that land, even though it is occupied by other forces. He trusts God for the victory. He is prepared for the struggles. And then I just see in Abraham a picture of grace that I I can't get past in this story, okay? What is the status of Lot? The status of Lot is an undeserving fool, right? That's who Lot is. He made bad decisions and has put himself, his family, and the promises at risk. That's what Lot has done. What does Abraham do? Abraham does not ignore the needs of Lot based on the fact that Lot had failures in his life. What does he do? He takes responsibility for the rescue of his nephew. And I believe gives us a beautiful picture of the gospel. He acted out of love because, listen, who was slighted when Lot chose the best land? Who was slighted? Abraham. I mean, Lot basically, Abraham said, hey, you choose whatever you want. Lot didn't say, hey, I'll take half the good land, you take half. Lot said, no, I'll take all the good land. And Abraham, I hope things work out for you. That's the way the story unfolds. Lot's enjoying the blessings of the plains of Jordan, but he's living near Sodom because of bad choices that he made. He failed to keep up the standards of what it meant to be a man of God. And the result is disaster in his life. What rescues disasters? Okay, you know what rescues disasters, people? The grace of God. The grace of God. Abraham didn't sit there and think, you know what? I'm just remembering all the wonderful characteristics of Lot and how good he's been to me. Let's go get him. That isn't there. Because you can't even, when you think of Lot, I guarantee you this, you never think of Lot as a righteous man. But in the book of 1 Peter, guess what Peter calls him? He calls him a righteous man who smote his conscience when he lived outside of God's plan for his life. 
What rescues people like that? You know what rescues people like that? Somebody. Somebody standing up and saying, this person is in deep trouble. They are certainly undeserving, but I am going to go to their rescue. Folks, that's Abraham. And that's the gospel. Okay, all of a sudden I'm in Genesis and what do I see? I see Jesus. I see Abraham pursuing an undeserving sinner to restore him and his blessings. And I see a picture of Christ. Who Isaiah 53 says himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that what? So that we could be forgiven and set free. Folks, I want to ask you this question this morning. When a brother or sister in Christ is struggling, do you move towards them or away from them? Do you serve them with judgment or love? Do you move to them in deeper grace? Because you remember that you were rescued by the grace of God. You see, you don't have to go back far in Genesis. Two chapters and guess where you are? You're looking at Abraham lying about his wife, putting her at risk. He deserved to die. He is delivered free. And he does not forget it. So that when a comrade in the Savior falls at his side, what does he do? He doesn't say, you know what, you should have seen that. You shouldn't have put that stumbling block on the path of your life. Now look at the mess you've made of your life. Now you know what he does? He moves towards him in grace. And you know what he, he gives us? A glorious picture of Jesus in Genesis 14. I hope you don't miss it. Folks, understand this. The whole Bible is about Jesus. From tip to toe. From beginning to end, it is all about Christ. And I hope that as you read through these stories, what you're saying is, God, show me Jesus. Why? Because all of us tend to be a lot more like Lot than we tend to be like Abraham, don't we? Let's be honest. That we, we know a lot more about the lessons of Lot than we do about the lessons of Abraham. Why? We struggle with faith in times of trial and battles and in times of blessing. Abraham put himself at risk to save Lot, who was an undeserving man, because he refused to hold grudges against those who had sinned against him. Now, who does that sound like? I take you to Luke 22. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. To who? To the ones that were brutally crucifying the Savior. And Abraham steps up. Who is he? He's a picture of Christ in this case. And one day, one day, what is he? He's a picture of a rebel. And then he's rescued by grace and he becomes a picture of Christ. Folks, that's what God does. That's what he does. If someone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. New has come. What do you see? You see Abraham rising, growing. This is a beautiful picture. And I hope that it will inspire you with thoughts of hope and a desire to love less fortunate Troubled, sinful rebels. Because when you do that, you're displaying to the world around you that God is a God of grace. That the God who loves me is the God that I love. And that I appreciate His grace in my life so much that when someone stumbles, I don't stand as a critic pointing at them. I go to them in love. And I do what Jesus did. Now, if you follow through the story, you find that Abraham goes, he develops a strategy which is critical 
Okay, it's not wrong to have strategies in your Christian life. Abraham has a plan. He goes up, he finds these armies, he assaults them, gets Lot, all the possessions, and comes back. Here to me is what's fascinating. Abraham did not raise the sword to gain the land for himself because God hadn't told him to do that yet. But he will raise the sword. He will go to battle to rescue someone who has fallen. Isn't that beautiful selflessness? When someone else is at risk, Abraham's like, I am there. And he's prepared. He's got 318 people ready to protect the promise. And I believe he runs into this battle because he knows that he is a man covered by the promise of God, therefore bulletproof. Why? God's spoken about his future. Abraham's like, I'm going to be there in the future, seeing the promises of God fulfilled. And that just fills him and imbibes him with some beautiful, beautiful power and grace. Now, a resounding victory and a returning victor. I thought of Victor Kelly when I wrote that in my notes. Okay, All right. Resounding victory, returning victor. Okay. What's the temptation? Abraham's coming back into the land. He is hometown hero. Five kings were destroyed by four. Abraham went after the four to get Lot and his stuff and bring it back into the promised land. Resounding victory. How does Abraham come back? This is probably one of the most dangerous moments in Abraham's life. Who gets the credit? Who gets the glory for what just happened? Who gets the praise? Well, verse 17 says, as Abraham's returning from defeating the king whose name is hard to pronounce, and the kings allied with him. Okay, what, what does it say? Abraham has cultivated relationships with people in the world, but he's not mixing in like Lot did. Okay, he had people that worked with him who probably were not yet believers. Not sure, but probably they were pagan kings that lived around the area where Abraham lived. The king of Sodom came out to meet him. And this is the moment. This is the, the tension in the story that rises here. How will Abraham respond to the offerings of the king of Sodom, who is a man of, who rules a notoriously wicked city, as we've seen a couple times already and we'll see in the future. How does he respond? Here's what rises as attention. Proverbs 21 says this. It says, The smelting pot is for silver. The furnace tests gold. But a man is tested by the praise that is given to him. Proverbs 27 21. A man is tested by the praise that is given to him. Folks, one of the most dangerous times in your Christian life is a time of success. You know why? It is so easy for us to think, you know what? Today, compared to yesterday, I'm doing pretty well. Things are going well. And what do we tend to do? Okay, and you know this, that the times of battles are times when we're drawing near to God. Because we know we need him. But then we face success after a battle. What do, we, what do we tend to do? We tend to loosen our grip on God. That's our temptation. Okay, but there's a greater temptation here. Because as the king of Sodom comes out, his desire is to bless Abraham and pour praise over him. God intervenes. God interrupts the king of Sodom. As Abraham comes through the valley of the kings, as the text says, what happens? King of Sodom comes out. He's getting ready to pour accolades on Abraham. Throw a ticker tape parade. The hero is home. 
hero of the valley, God intervenes with a, a, an enigmatic character named Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, probably Jerusalem. He is also a king of righteousness. King of righteousness, king of peace. Okay? And I'll just tell you this. In, in some way, he is functioning as a vital picture or type of Jesus in this story. Who is Jesus? He is the king that brings peace in your life. And he is the king of righteousness. Okay, and if you read Hebrews chapter 7, you'll find an entire chapter in the book of Hebrews that shows you the connection between this story of Melchizedek and the story of the life of Jesus. Okay, so there's a direct connection here, and I encourage you to go and to study that out in detail. The third lesson that emerges here is the temptation of success is defeated by a passion for the glory of God. Okay, the temptation of success, that the want to be, to be seen, to be victorious, to be better, to be bigger, that temptation is soundly defeated by what? A desire, and, and I'm going to tell you this, folks, it's not simply a desire for the glory of God. It is a passion, a driving passion for the glory of God that defeats temptation, not only of success, but the temptations of all kinds that are, and arise in our lives as believers. So Abraham's coming back in. The king of Salem interrupts the king of Sodom. What does he do? Verse 19. Let's just follow this real quickly. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, which I believe is the first indication of the topic of communion in the Bible, a picture of Christ. He was priest of the Most High God, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Folks, I want to say this. Okay, that is crucial information for Abraham at this time. Why? Because he is coming back, having defeated serious odds, and experiencing an amazing victory. That in some ways defies explanation. What does the king of Salem do? He encourages Abraham with words that he had needed to hear. A highly exalted view of God. Blessed, he says, by God most high. Who is Abraham's God? He is the God above all things. El Elyon is the name of God used here. It, the stress in this story is that this is the God who is above everything. Abraham, or Melchizedek goes on to say that he is the creator of heaven and earth. He made everything. So what does this name, God Most High, stress? It stresses the utter sovereignty of God in the affairs of humanity. That he created the world, owns the world, and rules the world. Why does Abraham need to know that? He needs to know that because God is the one who has given him this glorious victory. As he goes out to be Christ for the world, who empowers him to be Jesus? God himself empowers Abraham for victory. By putting an emphasis on the strength and sovereignty of God who made everything. That strength that is flowing over his life. Revelation 4.11 is the verse that comes to mind. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power and blessing. Why? Because you created everything. You created the world. You created me. Therefore, I belong to you and all of the glory from my life should be accorded and given to you. And I want you to notice the response. 
of Abraham to this providential moment of protection during a season of victory. What is the response of Abraham? Look at verse 20. Praise be to God most high. He delivered your enemies in his hand. Seriously needed reminder. The victory was from God. What does Abraham do? Then Abraham gave him what? A tenth of everything. Okay, he just, what happened? He's like, I want to acknowledge. What is the principle? The principle is the principle of first roots. The best in our life should be given to God. Why? Because he is responsible for everything in our lives. So the, the first fruits of our lives, of our resources, are given to promote and to advance the work of God. Abraham expresses gratitude in this giving. He's saying everything came from God, even this victory. And this proportionate giving, I believe, weakens the allure of material things. It weakens the allure of temporary praise. Why? Because he's just, he's responding to God. He's giving glory to God. Someone says, hey, praise God for sharing this or doing that. And you say, you know what? Thank God. Thank God. This meeting is providential protection for Abraham. Go down now to verse 21. The king of Sodom, he comes out. He wants to pour out the ticker tape parade. Melchizedek enters in, speaks to Abraham, adjusts his perspective, gives him a, an appropriate view of what happened. That victory Abraham was from God. And now he can deal with the king of Sodom and the applause that he desires to give. Strange statement in this verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people. Oh, and you can keep the goods for yourself. Okay, now at first when you read it, you think, oh, that's somewhat benevolent or generous on the part of the king of Sodom. But what's missing? There's no praise to God. There's no expression of gratitude. There's no God in this story at all for the king of Sodom. He's simply saying, I believe to Abraham. And I believe this is the temptation that Abraham faces. Abraham, you can take the credit. Take all, everything you brought back, take it. I give it to you to honor your success. Here's what's strange about it. By rights, who does this stuff belong to? It belongs to Abraham. Okay, we all know the phrase, to the victor goes what? The spoils. Okay, the, the logical thing would be that Abraham, these by rights, this stuff is his. He went and rescued it. He should be now ruling over the king of Sodom and over his alliances. Okay, but... Abraham is wise because he has already met with the king of Salem. And his response is affected by that meeting. The temptation to take credit, to get financial security, to get rich quick, to secure his own life. Does that not sound familiar? All right, Matthew chapter 4, what happens with Jesus? He is tempted by Satan to take a shortcut to all of the blessings. That would come after the cross. Avoid the cross. Bow down. I'll give you. Satan says. I, I'll give you all this stuff. That's the temptation that's given to Jesus. Same temptation here is given to Abraham. I want you to notice Abraham's response. Verse 22. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom. And that just sets up the contrast. Okay. The king of Sodom says. Hey keep everything for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom. I have raised my hand to the Lord. 
who he just learned is who? He is El Elyon. He is God the Creator, sovereign over all things. I have raised my hand to the Lord, Creator of heaven and earth. I have taken an oath. I will accept nothing belonging to you. Okay? And the king of Sodom is standing there like, what do you do with someone like that? Who will not accept praise, who will not take credit. Why? Because he has been humbled in the presence of God and sees that the victory that he has experienced was the work of God through him. He was just a willing instrument that stepped into the field of life and said, God, use me to rescue Lot. And he goes in the power of God. And the king Melchizedek reminds him that that victory he experienced was in the power of God as he walked in God's will. The end result is that the temptation to success is defeated by Abraham's passion for the glory of God. So what has he done? Before he went to war, he had raised his hand and pledged his allegiance. There would be no negotiating. He was not for sale. You couldn't buy him with the blessings. Okay, he couldn't be moved. Secondly, he says, I have taken an oath. Okay, and this is beautiful. Before going out to battle or in front of Melchizedek, he took an oath. He made a promise. Whatever comes out of this battle, I will keep none of it. Okay, and we'll come to why that is the case. Okay, the oath is he has already made up his mind. And what is the oath? Notice what it says. He said, I have made an oath that I will not accept anything belonging to you, not even a thread or the string or thong of a sandal. I won't take a shoelace or a thread from you, king of Sodom. Why? Okay, and that becomes the question. Why is Abraham so insistent on not taking these accolades, on insistent on not taking credit for what's happening? Abraham had a concern for the glory of God. Okay, he did not want the king of Sodom to be able to later say, hey, you see all that stuff that Abraham has? I gave that to him. He doesn't want to compromise the glory of God by decisions in his life. Folks, there are times in our lives as believers that we have to make decisions that affect the glory of God. And that decision to protect the glory and honor of God in our lives sometimes is going to be very, very costly. Abraham is a man of conviction. He is very clear. He is a man who was rich and blessed by God, but was not greedy as a result. He didn't live with a, 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 just a craving and a hunger for just a little bit more. That's not what drove him. What drove him was the glory of God in this circumstance. And that desire for the glory of God protects him from the temptation that success can bring in your life. He was trusting the one that Psalm 50 verse 10 says owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The king of kings. Okay, and what did that do? That weakened the temptation that he faced from an earthly king. Do you see? And so he's able to resist this temptation in a very powerful way. Not a thread, not a shoestring. Now, what is the key in this story? Okay, what is the key to this response to protect the glory of God in a context of success. I think the key is that his decision to protect the glory of God was made before the temptation to receive accolades came. 
so that in the midst of, of a season of success in his life, he's not craving praise. He's craving the glory of God. He wants God to be honored through the circumstance. Folks, please understand this. In every battle that you face and in every blessing that you experience, have this conviction. Life is about God. And when God is exalted, what happens? Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I draw all men to myself. What is Abraham saying? Abraham is saying, king of Sodom, I'm not going high. I'm going low. I want to I pass out of you. I want you to have one thing in your mind, that this victory came from God. He is attracting praise and honor and glory to God by rejecting the temporal blessings of earthly living. Have you made this kind of decision? Will you make this kind of decision? Take this kind of a vow. If you're single, make a decision about your sexuality before you meet somebody. If you're getting married, it's good to make a vow of fidelity before temptation in your marriage arises. If you're going into business, it's wise to establish sound business ethics that will glorify God because temptation is coming. It's coming. And we may collapse and morally compromise because we haven't made clear-cut decisions ahead of time. Abraham made clear-cut decisions that he would not give the king of Sodom an opportunity to claim responsibility for success in his life. That kind of faith and trust exalts God. And that kind of faith and trust draws credit to God. It attracts people to Him. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God, the glory of God, the honor of God in all spheres of your life, and everything else will get taken care of. We tend to get very passionate about temporal things. God wants us to be passionate about eternal things. Abraham knew what it was to fail, and he knew that his success was owing to the grace of God. Abraham knew what it was to fear a king called Pharaoh, didn't he? And now what does he do? He goes out and challenges four kings at once. What is he doing? He's growing, and he's giving us a glorious and powerful picture of Jesus. I want to ask you this question in conclusion. Is your love for Christ seen in obedience that's bold, and utter loyalty to Him alone. Okay? Can people look at your life and say, there goes a man, there goes a woman, there goes a teenager or a young person who is devoted to the glory of God. They don't budge. They, they, they live like people that in the past made a decision about living for God, and you can't shake them from it. And those people are visibly giving glory to God and attracting people to Him. When you have success in your life, who gets the credit? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I am where Lot was. I'm where Lot was. I've drifted away from God. He is not the primary, central focus of my life and existence. And in this story, I'm seeing the rescue of Lot. Through a man who typified Jesus. Would you respond to that saving grace that even though you don't deserve it, okay, it is offered to you today by God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth who sent his son and illustrated it and typified him in the person of Christ. Abraham is a deliverer. Jesus is your ultimate deliverer. And in the picture of Melchizedek, I'll just give you this one simple thought. Okay, Psalm 110 says of Melchizedek, 
He is a king and priest who lives forever. Go forward to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Here's what the Bible says. It says, we have a priest who ever lives to do what? To make intercession for us. And there's the connection between this text about Melchizedek and Abraham and Jesus Christ. Okay, who is Jesus? Jesus is the king of Salem, peace. He is the king of righteousness. And what does he do? He ever lives. After what? After his death on the cross to deliver you. He came and fought the battle you should have fought. He rose again on the third day. And he, Hebrews 7.25 says, He ever lives. Where? At the right hand of the Father. To do what? To make intercession for you. Isn't that beautiful? So if you look at your life today and you say, you know, I'm where Lot was. There is hope for you if you know Christ. And if you don't know Christ, He died to pay the price for your sin. He comes after you as a Savior and Redeemer. Though you are undeserving, at the risk of His own life. To rescue you. And when we remember that, we are going to be people that say, you know what? Tomorrow or for the rest of this day, for the rest of my life, I desire to live for the glory of God. Now, you may stumble in that commitment. When you do, what should you do? Go back to Abraham, the believer. Study his life. See Jesus in his life. And draw near to him. And when you do, he is the priest who will do what? Who will take his shed blood and pour it over your life. And ever intercede for you. When king of, Sal- king of Melchizedek comes, what does he do? He brings bread and wine. What is it? I believe it's the first communion service in the Bible. It is the first forward look type or picture of Jesus. And when we gather together as the church, what are we doing? We're remembering God and his glory. We're exalting Him because when we exalt Him over all circumstances in our life, we kill pride. We put away sin. We go out in the joy of forgiveness to rescue brothers and sisters in Christ and to rescue the lost from the world. To bring them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?